Howdy, and welcome to the show. Cooper's Code examines a legal issue and hits the highlights so we can all achieve the best results for our clients. I'm Miles Cooper, and with today's guest, Tim Michael, our pre-litigation case manager, we will be discussing underinsured motorist coverage and how it applies in injury cases. Before we get into today's topic, a few words about Cooper's LLP. We at Cooper's are committed to thought leadership, developing the best talent, and honing skills through learning, practice, trial, and the relentless pursuit of justice for consumers. With lawyers licensed in California, Oregon, and Washington, we're available for free strategic consultation on cases, and we accept referrals and trial co-counsel opportunities. For more information, visit our website at coopers.law or email us at podcast at coopers.law. Welcome to the show, Tim. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Nice to have you here. And I think before we uh, get going, I am going to have to ask you to give some signature Matthew McConaughey. All right, all right, all right. Yeah. Everyone who knows you is going to want to hear that. People have been pushing for that for a couple of years now at the firm. So maybe this will be the official one. Yeah. I'm feeling a little upstaged on the voice front, but that's okay. We can work with it. So what are we talking about here today? We're going to cover underinsured motorist coverage and the basics of it. It's an important insurance coverage, especially with the clients that we tend to work with, bicyclists. A lot of bicyclists do not appreciate that underinsured motorist coverage even exists, and they do not appreciate how it could protect them or cover them. There's a lot to explore in the UIM world, and I look forward to that. I'm guessing that most people recognize that there is not a difference from underinsured versus underinsured when we're talking about UIM. It's just a question of whether the driver who hits someone has no insurance or just doesn't have enough insurance when it comes down to it. But we'll be using the phrase UIM throughout. Fair enough? Yeah, yeah. You will hear UM, uninsured motorist, or UIM, underinsured motorist. But generally, we refer to it as UIM because in the vast majority of cases, there is an insured third party. And so we're exploring the underinsured coverage. And the other piece that some folks don't realize, usually it's the clients that we're talking to, is that UIM coverage covers you in California for any time there is a vehicle strike involved. Meaning whether you are a pedestrian where you get clipped by a car, whether you're a cyclist where you get clipped by a car, whether you're a passenger in somebody else's car where there's a crash, The vehicle strike piece is the interesting piece, though, because while California has a three-foot law where cars aren't supposed to come within three feet of a cyclist, you you have to have that contact, even if it's just a brush with the rearview mirror that knocks you into a ditch. Without that, there's no coverage. Right. And a couple of interesting points out of that. One is, yeah, you have to have the actual vehicle strike itself. So there's no just close calls and there has to be contact. The other interesting thing is what is a vehicle strike? Well, it, it, you have to be struck by a vehicle and that in this case, we're talking about generally automobiles. If you're struck by another bicyclist, your underinsured motorist coverage does not cover you because the bicyclist is not a vehicle in their eyes. It's interesting. And one area that we have explored, but haven't found the right case yet is the situation where a e-bike that is not a class one, two, or three e-bike, one of the 45 mile an hour, for example, where that is a vehicle, the question then arises, if you get hit by one of those, and a lot of times those people don't have insurance, can you then make a claim under your UIM if you are hit as a bicyclist or pedestrian? We're looking for the right case for that one, right? 
Yeah, no, I haven't found a 45-mile-per-hour e-bike hitting anybody yet, but when that time comes, and I'm sure it will, might be able to explore that coverage. One of the other things that frequently comes up in underinsured motorists is the issue of stacking. Can you define what stacking is and whether California is a state where it stacks? Yes. So, and and it might be helpful to zoom out a little bit and actually look into the the third-party coverage. Maybe we can talk about numbers. We'll use state minimums in this case. In California, a driver is required by state law to carry at least $15,000 of insurance coverage. And so let, let's let's use that $15,000 example and say John Smith is riding along on his bicycle. He gets struck by a driver with $15,000 of insurance coverage. His injuries or his damages are significant enough to get that $15,000 policy. So now John Smith has gotten that $15,000 policy from the third party or the tortfeasor, and he can now turn towards his UIM coverage. And there are different levels of UIM coverage, of course. You can have You'll never see a situation in which somebody carries the state minimum, but you'll see situations in which people have 50000 or 100000 250000 So let's say John Smith has $100,000 in UIM coverage. He's already gotten the $15,000 from the third party. He can only recover a total of $100,000 for that loss. So that means from the UIM, he can only recover 85000 That's what we're referencing when we say there is no stacking. So... You can't get the 15000 plus your $100,000 policy. You can only get a total valuation of that $100,000 UIM policy. So $15,000 from the third party, $85,000 from your UIM policy. And that's where it is a California policy where presently in California, it doesn't stack. Correct. That is California. And that that is an important note because we also work in Oregon and Oregon, the policies do stack, which it's pretty nice. So in Oregon, you'll run into a situation where the third party might be carrying, let's say, well, the state minimum in Oregon is 25000 You might run into an instance where the third party driver is carrying $25,000 of insurance, and then your client has a $100,000 UIM policy. You can recover the 25000 from the third party, and then you can turn back towards your insurance company and request the full $100,000 UIM policy for a total of $125,000. So Oregon policy stack, and the other thing to look out for in Oregon is some people have multi-car households and that's fairly common thing. And so in Oregon, if you have multiple cars, you often have multiple insurance policies, which means multiple UIM policies, and those can stack. So I've ran into an instance where I've had a client recover the policy limits from the third party, and then they have two separate UIM policies. So they were able to get the full value of both of their UIM policies as well. So really, they got the policy limits on three separate policies. As we evaluate UIM and stacking, the one other area where exercising caution occurs is even if you are in a state where it doesn't stack, have you had situations where somebody has moved here recently and is insured under a different state's policy. I have not had a case where the policy was based in a different state and we've needed to use the UIM coverage. But I have had situation where my client, uh, while his incident occurred in California, he was a resident of California for the time being. He was on his parents' insurance policy and they lived in a different state. Well, in that state, 
they require that all people carry $3,000 of what we call personal injury protection or uh, PIP, PIP coverage. Personal injury protection, it's essentially a no-fault coverage that when you are injured in a collision, your policy extends this coverage to you to cover your medical expenses, lost income up to a certain threshold. But essentially, this is a no-fault coverage. So your own insurance policy extends these benefits to you, regardless of whether it was your fault or not. And actually, the third-party driver also has PIP coverage that can be available to your client in certain situations. That is a conversation for a, another day, maybe. But in those situations, there are different levels of who gets paid first. So essentially, your insurance has to pay your medical bills first, and then your health insurance, and then the third-party driver can start covering the remaining bills with their PIP coverage. Anyhow, zooming back out, this client had a $3,000 PIP policy that was required in their state. And because of that $3,000 PIP requirement, I then had to exhaust that PIP before I could proceed on with resolving the case. So that is something that whether you're looking at UIM or not, something to just generally look out for is what state is the insurance policy written in and what are the requirements for coverage in that state? And I think that takeaway from this with the global nature of today's workforce, whether people are going out of town for school or whether they're remote working or what have you, that finding out all of the information about the insurance policy, not just getting a declaration page, but figuring out where the policy was written and figuring out whether that state stacks or doesn't stack. And you talked about the PIP issue. We have had a case in the past where somebody moved to California within six months of getting struck as a pedestrian. And she moved from a state where things stacked and her auto policy was from that state. So even though she was hit in California, the California minimum was paid by the driver who hit her. She ended up being able to stack those policies because it was an out-of-state policy. So the lesson is always do the detail work on the policy. Always see if there are other policies available because you may inadvertently leave money on the table if you don't do that. It's easy to think, hey, we are operating in California and Oregon. Most of our clients live in California and Oregon. They probably have insurance written in California and Oregon. But as you said, global world we're living in, people are moving around a lot more often and sometimes their insurance coverage they, they change that after the fact. And so um, definitely something to keep your eye on. As we have this conversation, I think it's important to bring forward that anytime we're talking with a potential client, having the conversation about the importance of underinsured motorists, even if they're not in a serious incident, that particularly on the, on the cycling side, carrying high underinsured motorist is important because quite honestly, it's the, the cheapest disability insurance that you can buy. Yeah. So one of my roles at the firm has been handling client intake calls in the past. And in handling those calls, something I would notice is a lot of cyclists end up injured and they do not have an auto insurance policy. That makes sense. They're cyclists. Sometimes that, that is their way of getting around, especially maybe in San Francisco, you see a lot of people that they only use the bike to travel around the city and they don't have a car. And so they don't have an auto insurance policy, which means they do not have UIM coverage. In the state of California, 
it's about one third of drivers are either driving without insurance or the state minimum $15,000 of insurance. So we get a lot of calls from cyclists who, as I said, may not have an auto insurance policy, but we're looking at this situation where you got a roughly 30 to 40% chance of being hit by somebody with only $15,000 in coverage, which if you're struck on a bicycle, a lot of times $15,000 is not going to be enough coverage for you. So, so often it turned out that I would end up on these phone calls. I would have to tell the cyclist that we do not yet know the amount of coverage available from the third party insurance policy, but because they do not have a UIM coverage, whatever that policy is, that is the most we'll be able to recover, or most likely that is the most we'll be able to recover. A lot of times then the conversation pivots into a conversation around UIM coverage. And I explain to them, even though you do not own a vehicle, I highly recommend that you look into an underinsured motorist policy because you can get a policy without owning a vehicle. So you can have a non, they call it a non-operator underinsured motorist policy. And if you're a cyclist out on the road, um, sharing the road with, you know, these vehicles, oftentimes vehicles carrying not enough insurance, it makes sense to have $100,000, $250,000, $500,000 of UIM insurance to protect yourself. And your point about the non-owner operator policies is well taken. Our household does not have a car. And because of what we've seen, I carry a million dollar UIM coverage because if something were to happen to me, I would want to make sure that it made up for some of the income loss that we would suffer if that did occur, if the person who struck us, struck me, didn't have a lot of insurance. As we're going through umbrella coverage and making sure that we do the best job we can for all of our clients, do you ask clients about umbrella or excess policies? Yes. So generally in my role as a pre-litigation case manager, I handle a case pretty early in its life cycle at our firm. Um, I'm helping gather a lot of the initial information, determining the insurance coverage landscape, what policies are available to us. And so, yes, one of the, one of the first questions that I do ask clients is what insurance coverage do you have? And that conversation is not just what is your auto insurance policy. It is all insurance. So auto insurance, health insurance, umbrella policies. There are some situations, it, it's been rare, but there are some situations where people have umbrella policies that uh, essentially cover them for underinsured motorist situations. They're rare, but we've seen it before. They are rare if somebody is injured enough where it goes beyond their first level of underinsured motorist, getting that information. Do they have an umbrella or excess? Getting the full policy to see if it, there's coverage there. Again, just doing the homework to make sure that we've exhausted all the available collectability of insurance. It sounds like that's a piece of your homework in building the information on the pre-litigation side. Of course, yeah. And part of it is gathering that information to see if, you know, we are able to resolve that case in pre-litigation. But sometimes I'm gathering all of that information to tee it up for the litigation team for when they need to handle the case down the road. Have you ever had a situation where a corporate UIM policy has come in play? We have. And that typically is not a bicycling case. It's typically someone who is driving a vehicle or who is a passenger in a vehicle. And that vehicle is owned by a corporation or rented 
on a corporate trip. And larger corporations oftentimes will have their own insurance policies, auto policies, where there's UIM and sometimes umbrella or excess. And if somebody is working at the time that they are injured, an important part of the evaluation process is looking at corporate policies. If there's not enough insurance with the vehicle who hit them to see if there are other UIM policies like from their employer. I think this is a good point for us to pivot into the interaction between the UIM and health insurance. Are there situations where, say for example, driver has $15,000 of insurance, person who's injured has a significant health insurance lien, you know, six figures or so, and that person has $100,000 of UIM. Is there a situation where it's actually advantageous for the driver to have that low $15,000 insurance policy in terms of, of trying to set it up for the maximum recovery for the person that got hit? In the scenario you laid out, there are times that a $15,000 third-party policy is advantageous for the client when they have a large medical lien. And generally, this is why I like to look at the health insurance plan language from the outset of the case. One of the first things we do when we take a case is, well, we contact the health insurance company and we open a lien with them or we ask them for their lien. And when they send over the lien, we also ask for the contract language. That essentially tells us what the health insurance company is entitled to recover. And different plans are entitled to recover different amounts of money and or from different recoveries. So sometimes the plan language will clearly say the plan is only entitled to recover from any third party settlement. Other times the plan language will say the plan is entitled to recover from any third party settlement, underinsured motorist settlement, uninsured motorist settlement, essentially entitling them to any recovery in your case. Is one more common than the other? In my personal experience, I would not say one is more common than the other. I see about half and half of each, but granted everybody's caseload's different, but for the most part, I tend to see about half of my plans are entitled to recover third party and underinsured. The other half can just get the third party. But my understanding is more often than not, they're only able to recover from the third party. It tends to be these ERISA backed plans that, that kind of protect the plan and allow them to recover from UIM, UM, and third party. I seem to get an awful lot of these ERISA plans. Uh, maybe that's just my luck. When you hear the phrase self-funded ERISA, prepare for joy, right? Yeah, no kidding. I just got through a brutal six-month negotiation on a self-funded ERISA lien, and uh, I think it was uh, six months of negotiating for a 16% reduction, but you do what you can, right? You were describing how you use the plan language to be able to help figure out what power you were going to have in dealing with that $15,000 policy and the lien. At the outside of the case, like I said, I like to look at the health, health insurance plan language. And if the plan language says they're only entitled to the third party settlement, well, great. Now in the scenario you presented, you've gotten the $15,000 policy from the third party. You can now turn around to your health insurance company or the lien holder and say, hey, we got the policy limit, $15,000. That's the most our client could have recovered. We see that you have this $100,000 lien. But as you can tell, this $15,000 is not enough to cover 
everything that my client has gone through here. So that's when we try to start negotiating with them. Generally, I will say out of this $15,000 settlement, the client has to pay a third of it to us. And that's because we help the client pursue this claim. Hopefully you guys are willing to share in that cost. And then we say, so after that third, that $15,000 is now down to 10. Sometimes I'll suggest to the plan, how about you take 5,000 and then we'll give the client 5,000. And essentially we're splitting the 15,000 three ways. The firm will take five, the client will take 5,000 and the plan can have 5,000. Generally, if the plan takes the deal and most of the time in this situation, they will take the deal. This is a great result for your client because now they've taken a $100,000 lien. They've taken care of it for only five grand. And then they can still turn back towards their insurance company and use their UIM coverage in the situation you presented. They can turn back to their insurance company and try to recover an additional $85,000 with no lien holder on the back end. So in that situation, it is advantageous to have a third party with a low policy. But the kicker is the client has to have the UIM policy to have something to recover from. If the client doesn't have that UIM policy, you've just got that 15,000 third party. You're sending $5,000 to the health insurance company. The client's getting 5,000. The law firm's getting 5,000. Or sometimes in that situation, they might waive their fee. But that's why UIM coverage can be super helpful sometimes. Interestingly, one of the things you tend to find is the older somebody is, the more financially sophisticated somebody is, the more likely it is that they have a decent underinsured motorist policy. Absolutely. But it has been funny. As I've learned in this career of mine more about insurance coverages, I've started going to family members, friends, be sitting around the dinner table, and I'm the guy that likes to bring up, hey, so yeah, what's your UIM coverage? You must be popular at parties. They love me. The families love me. So I'll say, hey, auntie, what's your UIM coverage? And she'll usually say, what is UIM? In which case, then I give them the whole spiel that we've just had for the last many minutes. And generally, what I found is even my fairly sophisticated family members, friends, some of them own a house or, you know, have assets. They don't have a UIM coverage that honestly is sufficient for what they own. And I think a lot of people do not recognize the importance of a UIM policy, especially, I say, especially in a state like California, where, as I mentioned, a third of the drivers are out there with either no insurance or only $15,000, which $15,000 in the grand scheme of things is not a lot of money. So the takeaway that I'm hearing is whether you're talking to a potential client, a family member, a friend, even looking at your own coverage as you're listening to this, because as we lawyers know, the cobbler's kids have no shoes and lawyers tend to die without wills. I have to imagine there are a number of personal injury lawyers out there with insufficient UIM coverage right now as we speak. The overarching theme is review those policies and make sure you evangelize on the UIM piece so that people have the right coverage should they need it down the road. Absolutely. And um, even more important if you're working with cyclists. As we are winding up, getting to a close, anything else that you think people should know about underinsured motorist policies as they apply to injury cases? The only other point I would like to make is, uh, as we were talking about exploring insurance coverages and what is available, it's important to keep in mind that you're the one doing the homework and it is you that has to actually figure out what is available and 
kind of apply the pressure. You can't take your State Farm policy number and go to State Farm and say, here's the policy number, what coverage do I have? You have to check and make sure that what they tell you is the coverage is actually there. And if you have one policy number, they're not going to say, oh, actually, you have three UIM policies in Oregon under this policy number. They're only going to tell you about the one as long as you say there is one. So make sure you do your homework, know how many policies are available, figure out how many policies are available, and apply pressure as needed. Fiduciary duties be damned. You got to give it to the insurance company in a way that they turn around and give it to you. That's the truth. Well, Tim, thank you for being here. I really enjoyed our conversation about underinsured motorist coverage. Thanks for having me. Me as well. And thank you for listening today. Please email us at podcast at coopers.law with questions, comments, feedback, and suggestions on ways that you've handled underinsured motorist coverage to the extent that you have something that we didn't talk about here today. Like what you heard? Share us with a colleague and leave us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. To all of you doing justice out there, happy hunting.